0: Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia everyone and welcome along to Seeds Podcast. I'm really glad you could join me this week as we get the chance to speak with Terry Shupkin, who's the Chief Excitement Officer at the Young Enterprise Scheme. Now, this is an amazing initiative which teaches young people in high school about running a business. So we have a fascinating conversation about that. But before we get into it, we also talk about Terry's own life and her background and what led her to New Zealand. And in particular, we hone in on how she's made big life decisions. I know you're going to enjoy this interview. And if you do, you might want to check out some of the more than 180 in the back catalogue. SEEDS is about building up a database of stories of inspiring people who are doing things a little bit differently here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. These are also long form interviews, so we find out all about the background of a person and then find out what they're doing today. There's also a bunch more information at theseeds.nz including the video of this interview, because we did it by Zoom. And be sure to check out the links and other things in the show notes. Also, thanks to everybody who's leaving ratings and reviews in Apple Podcasts and telling your friends about seeds. With no marketing budget at all, that's really the only way for seeds to get shared, so I really do appreciate it. And if you do enjoy this episode or another one, then why not share it or tell a friend about it? Now let's get into this interview with Terry. So it's a real pleasure to welcome Terry Shupkin, who's the Chief Excitement Officer at Young Enterprise, thanks for joining me.
1: Thanks, David. It's wonderful to be here with you. Yeah, no,
0: it's great. I'm really glad we could connect, because I, I love what Young Enterprise is doing, and in particular, thinking about youth. You know, before we started recording, we were we were just talking about um, what does the future hold, and how do people make decisions on what they want to do with their lives, and it's so important to to give people opportunities. So I'd love to learn more about that. But in the interviews, I always try to go back in time. So could you just tell us a bit about your childhood and where you were from?
1: So um, as you can probably guess from my accent, I am American. Uh, so I was born outside Detroit, Michigan, and grew up there till I was 13, and then uh, spent my teenage years in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Um, and then I went off to St. Louis, Missouri, uh, for university um, before I came to New Zealand.
0: Wow. So that childhood, um, that's quite a cold place, right? Michigan in the in the winter?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I went from the very cold to the very warm. So Michigan is the uh, sort of the north of the, the, the USA. Mm-hmm. Um, very, very cold winters. Um, went from there to the deep south, which is incredibly hot. And I forgot how hot it was until I was there um, this past January.
0: Right. Yeah. So what are some of your first memories or what was shaping you as a young person, like even six or seven years old, were you outside a lot? Were you reading a lot? Yeah, describe yourself at at that young age.
1: So for me, when I look back, so I am multicultural. Um, Most people don't get that, I'm actually half Chinese. Um, And if you ever hear the story of a tiger mom, I had a tiger mom. So, (laughs) you know, I I was raised from a young age to be very disciplined, um, to study hard. Um, You know, I started playing the piano when I was five, and from five years old, you practice the piano every an hour, every day. Wow! Um, and I'm very grateful for the discipline it brought into me. And it isn't until you get much older that you realize that everyone has a different journey and that wasn't necessarily uh, normal for, for a lot of people.
0: Mm-hmm. What was driving, was it your mother then who was, who was kind of helping you on that journey of, of studying and, and doing piano and things?
1: Yeah. Yeah, very much. Both my parents were very focused on, I guess, good education. Uh, my father, um, has a PhD. My mother was a physiotherapist. So they always sort of drilled into my sister and I, uh, the need to have a good education and what that could provide for you in life.
0: Mm-hmm. And for your mother, had she, was she born in China? Had she come over or had she been there a long time or?
1: So my mother's Singaporean Chinese. Okay. Um, and actually met my father, um, when she was studying in um, the UK and my mother, my father was doing a year of postdoctoral work.
0: Um, ironically,
1: they actually met on a ski trip, which is weird because my mother hates the cold.
0: Right, (laughs) Oh, that's interesting. But you end up in Michigan, and then how did you end up moving south?
1: So my dad got transferred. So he was a research chemist, and the company he worked for uh, closed their Michigan offices. Um, So we relocated to Baton Rouge, and it was an interesting time. So in some ways for me, it was kind of one of my turning points um, because timing was perfect. I was just starting uh, high school, in some ways you can kind of reinvent yourself mm-hmm. um, without that, that what I was, you know, beforehand, um, you know,
0: you were 13, was it, or?
1: I was 13 at the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really interesting. And my sister had a much harder time with it because she was two years older than me. Um, so she had a very well-established um, high school life and friends. Um, and, we moved down, and it's really interesting for me. And she'll she'll deny it. If she tells you, but I was always the little sister in my in, in my big sister's shadow. Um, so she was a perfectionist. She was really good. She thinks I'm imagining this, but I do have a memory of going into middle school or at, you know intermediate school and having the guidance counselor say to me, "Oh, you're Kathy's little sister. Are you as smart as her, or are you dumb?" Now, <laughs> maybe over the years I've kind of made the words what I want them to be, but that memory stuck with me that I was always in the shadow of my big sister, and don't get me wrong, I I didn't do poorly, but I was kind of a a solid B student, you know, with the odd C. And then for some reason, going to Louisiana and having that fresh start and not being Kathy's little sister, um, yeah, I started becoming an A student, which you know was was quite refreshing, you know.
0: Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? It's fascinating. Birth order, and you know, what do we take from our position, you know, like if you're first born, if you're second, if you're third or whatever, that mm. that, that would be an amazing thing to get into. Um, but I, I understand, because I've moved a lot myself as well. I, I've lived in six different countries and each time it's felt in a way like I can leave behind the stuff that everybody knew about in this location yeah. and which bits of myself and which bits that I've never had do I want, you know? to reinvent yeah. in this new environment. So it sounds like that was the situation for you.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think as you get older, you realize that can be a conscious thing, but when you're still young, it just happens. And then you reflect on it later to go, oh, that was a turning point for me when I think about it.
0: Yeah, yeah, Oh, that's really good. And I guess 13, you're old enough to kind of be aware of these things as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: So so what was that like? Like the culture in the South, it's quite different to where you had been. Did, did you notice that as well?
1: Yeah, definitely. I, I definitely noticed it different. I'd say there were things that I loved about the South and things that I didn't. Um, it was my first experience that I remember with racism. Um, you know, so it, it's not saying that that didn't happen in Michigan. I just hadn't observed it. Um, but I went down uh, and then being in Louisiana schools went back, great. Right? So I'd gone to a public school up north um, and our parents put us into a private school down south. Um, and I remembered that it was a relatively small um, school, um, very private, very elite. Um, and there was about a hundred people in the class and there were two African Americans in class. And I still remember being at a party and dancing with a boy and someone's like, Terry, you're, you're dancing with Corey. And I was like, Yes, I can see that. Um, <laughs> and, and they kept asking me the question, and I—they're like, "Well, he's black," and I was like, "Yes, I can see that." You know, and as a thirteen-year-old who hadn't personally experienced it, I, it took me a while to click what was going on. Um, now, you know, I'd like to say that you know the friends that I had from there—they they aren't racist, you know—and I've seen something. But there was certainly in Louisiana, um, you know, that that undertow of racism that I just hadn't experienced in the north. Mm. Um, yes, yeah, so and that was an interesting learning experience for me as, as a young person.
0: Mm. yeah, I can imagine it's yeah, it's quite a contrast um, and it's some, I, this picture comes up a lot on the podcast, but sometimes people are fish in the fishbowl they're, they're not even aware of yeah. their ingrained assumptions or prejudices or things like that. Um, I, I also have an accent because I have origins back in America as well, and I know some of the family. That you know, going back a hundred years, they were in the South, in South Carolina, and that sort of area, and there was definitely things that, you know, you and I would go, how could that have happened? But at the time, uh, people didn't d- didn't know.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I think as well, like again, you don't know what you you, you have an experience, and maybe possibly growing up multicultural um you know i talk about this with a number of my friends who are also you know multicultural bicultural which is you have quite a different perspective i think when you grow up with uh two different heritages Mm. it just seems normal that there are different ways of doing things Mm. that possibly if you didn't have that experience you wouldn't Mm. um you know so that was almost kind of a learning for me as well it's like oh does does everyone not really get that um you know and i think particularly given the fact that i am um, you know, as I like to call, it, I, I am a half grade. Um, but most people don't guess, guess it. And almost nobody guesses Chinese. Right. Um, that again, that lens people put on when they talk to me, they assume that I don't have that experience or, you know, I've made my particular favorite. I mean, not that it's happened often, but on odd times I'll get a racist comment about a Chinese person to me. You know, right. I, I, I have to admit when I was younger, I used to get upset and now I, I leave it long enough to let them kind of like, you know, create a big rope for themselves. And then I make them feel really awkward. <laughs> I think that's probably the best way that they're going to learn is when they start groveling to apologize.
0: Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, my mother was born in Panama, so she um, grew up with Panamanian heritage, and um, my grandfather was Panamanian. They'd come over when France was building the canal, so this is like 1890s. Um, Anyway, she grew up speaking Spanish, and I think Mm -hmm. that had a, a bit of a legacy for me as well. Because I, I grew up speaking some Spanish as well. And it I think it does switch your mindset if you're aware that, oh, there's other ways of doing things. There's other yeah. types of food, you know, and just the basic things. Um, mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think you're right. It's not that people who don't grow up with it, it's not a fault of theirs. It's just that that's their experience, which is there's one way of doing things Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, Oh, interesting. So you're getting through your high school years. And um, did you know what you wanted to study or what you wanted to do? Or where you wanted to go?
1: <laughs> yeah, so I, um, I'm self confess math and science geeks. Um, mm-hmm. So I love my math, I love my science. So I decided I wanted to be an engineer. Um, and I also had in my mind, um, because I had that drive instilled in me, that I wanted an opportunity to do an MBA program. So I applied to a number of universities, and the one I chose was one that had what they called the 3-2 program. So in the U.S., you normally do four years of undergraduate, and if you wanted to do a graduate, a master's of something, it was two years. So the university I applied to had a good engineering school, and they had this 3-2 program where you didn't know until your third year whether you got accepted to it or not. But if you did, you effectively did both your bachelor's and your MBA in five years. Mm. Um, and so I, that's why I chose Washington University. Um, so I went there um, and I was accepted. And so I ended up doing five years at WashU um, in St. Louis, Missouri um, to get a bachelor's in engineering. Um, the most geeky one possible um, called, uh, it was actually, I, I normally say it's called control systems, but in reality, my diploma says system science and mathematics. And it's really funny because my sister called me at the start of COVID-19 at one point and said, I'm so excited I finally figured out what your degree is, is about. <laughs> and I was like, well, that's kind of a weird thing to, to be telling you right now. Why is that? And of course, during COVID-19, um, I think every one of us knows the John Hopkins map where you track how so many cases. Well, if you actually look at the top of the website, it's actually by their system science and engineering department. Ah. Uh-huh. So, you know, it, it's only taken what 30 something years for my sister to figure out what my degree was in.
0: Right. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. So it sounds like it, confi- it combined all of the STEM sort of subjects, then science, yeah. technology, and yeah. maths, and
1: all of Absolutely. that. Yeah. So, maths and physics a lot, you know. Yeah. 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 Oh. And I always sort of talk about myself in the way that I always say there are two sides to I me. Mean, we can, you know, have a chat later about my early career, but I'm always like, I'm a salesperson meets engineer. Yeah, which right. is kind of a strange combination, but that engineering training in me, um, you know, it, it, it really, whether it's because I have the engineering degree or that's how I was thinking anyways, mm. I don't know, but um, I do regularly, I think like an engineer. Um,
0: so tell me about that. How does an engineer think that it would be different, do you think?
1: Very process-oriented. I'm very process-oriented. Mm-hmm. Everything I look at, I see a process. Um, I see a flow chart. Um, the team at work will be like, "Oh God, there she goes, flowcharting things." <laughs> um, you know, even a sales process. I I flowchart the sales process. Um, yeah, I remember actually one of um, our yes alumni once asked me, "You know, do you ever use your engineering degree?" And I said, "Well, I've never actually worked as an engineer, but I use it every day." And he mm. said, "Why?" Well, I said, "Because I think like an engineer."
0: Um, right. Yeah. That's really interesting. I I find it fascinating. The study that you do, you know, it does train your mind in certain ways of thinking. And, um, I work as a lawyer, so I have a law degree and I think it did, you know, I don't remember any of the cases I had to memorize or any of the, the detail, but Mm -hmm. it did teach a very logical way of thinking, you know, about a problem and well, here's the evidence, here's the facts, here's the conclusion. And, um, yeah, Yeah. I I think you're right. It, it, that, training can help you to can't it to think in a certain way.
1: Yeah.
0: Mm. So mm. What happened after that? Did you know what type of job you wanted at the end of that study or?
1: No. Well, this starts the story where I, I quite often will say to some of our, our students and people, you know, that there are three things they need to think about in life. You know, as they think about their careers, one, they have to think and plan their own career mm-hmm. because if they don't work for it um, and plan it, nobody else will. Mm -hmm. Um, They have to be prepared for disappointments and sometimes those disappointments are the best learning you'll ever have Um, and sometimes you look back and you think oh thank God that that happened because I wouldn't have wanted that in the first place and then the third thing is you have to be prepared for the unexpected so sometimes the best opportunities in life are ones that you haven't planned for and you have a very short window to make a decision whether you go for it or not. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was probably my first case of being disappointed so um, I'm coming up to graduation um, and I remember because I was going uh, skiing with some friends and a number of us were waiting on our dream job. Um, mine happened to be a dream job with Anheuser-Busch um, in their graduate program, which you know kind of dangled the care in front of you and you get fast-tracked into executive position. Um, and so we were away skiing and um, we all get our calls about whether we got the job or not and, I didn't get my
0: job. Mm.
1: Everyone else got their job. I didn't get my job, so you know, I have to admit, I probably sulked in the first instance. Um, maybe went out and had a few too many drinks, which I wouldn't recommend. Um, but in the course of that, it was funny as I was sulking, um, I ran into somebody I knew from undergraduate um, who had been taking a year off, just uh, um, and taking a year off of med school and just to have a break. Um, and was having a chat to him about it. Got back, I was talking to one of my best friends from high school who had graduated and was um, randomly moving to Florida and was getting a bit of grief about that. And I was sort of giving her this advice, going, "You know, well, we're only Heather, we're only young ones. You know, why wouldn't you do that? What's the worst that can happen?" And I suddenly thought, maybe I should listen to my own advice. Mm-hmm. You know, my only plan, and I didn't really have a plan B didn't happen. Um, I'm not used to not getting what I want cause I'm used to, if I work for it, getting it. Um, so then at short notice I came up with the idea to, to go overseas. Now the challenge for me was I didn't have much money. Um, so I had to find somewhere where I could work while I was overseas. Um, and I started looking and I got the name of a company that helped you get work visas. Um, and they uh, gave me a list of about eight countries that they could get me a work visa for. And I started looking around, um, I didn't want to go to Europe, because that was sort of the very typical American thing. That's what everyone else did. Mm-hmm. Um, I still remember There was, uh, Jamaica, but I thought I'd be bored in four, after four months. Um, Costa Rica, um, which I thought, well, by the time I get fluent in Spanish, I'll be leaving. <laughs> um, and interesting. So one was, um, New Zealand. So I asked for New Zealand. They came back and they said that we can't get you New Zealand. We can get you Australia. Um, so I said, "Great, I'll do Australia." Um, and then they came back and said, "Actually, no, we can't get your work visa for New Zealand." Um, and I was debating between the two. And my boss at the time had just come from back from both countries, and he's like, "No, definitely go to New Zealand." Huh. And that was about as far as it got in terms of how did I decide for New Zealand?
0: Right. How interesting, isn't it? Amazing the the little bits in life. You know what influences us to make decisions and. Um, you know, that somebody would have been to both and said, you should go there. And so, okay, I'm doing
1: it. And and I also look back and think that was the first job I didn't get that. I'm really glad I did not with the power of hindsight, Mm because, you know, who would want to sell bad beer the rest of their life?
0: Right. (laughs) Well, this is probably, I'm sure you use it as a, as an example for people, young people that you're talking to, right? That sometimes Mm -hmm. things don't work out the way you expect. And then you shoot off in this direction, and it 's only with hindsight that you realize how valuable it is and, and mm-hmm. how fortunate it is. I have my own version of that story, which is I was in law school hoping to get a summer carking job at a big law firm mm-hmm. didn't get it, and so instead, I moved to Japan and had an amazing year in Japan teaching English, you know learning the language, traveling around, eating food and as a 2021 20, year old, experiencing a different part of the world that I never would have gone to, and so with hindsight, you know, when yeah. I got the equivalent of your phone call, it was devastating. But looking now, it's like actually that was probably the best thing that could have happened. Yeah. Imagine who I would have become. Yeah, know? because you never
1: would have gone there without
0: my Yeah, and with your with your mother's legacy in terms of Singapore, did you ever think of exploring that and kind of going? going to Singapore or not really?
1: Yeah. No, not really. It just didn't even dawn yeah. on me. You know? mm. Mm. And again, partially because I wasn't thinking about moving at that time. I just thought, well, I want to go for four months, but I have no money. So I'll go somewhere work. I'll yeah. and I'll travel for a month and I'll go home and figure out how I get a job.
0: Interesting. So you arrive in New Zealand then where did you end up?
1: Yep. So I arrived in New Zealand, um, in, up in Auckland, um, I booked a, a bed and breakfast for the first two nights and ended up being into a backpackers. And I basically just took my CV and I started pounding the pavement. You know, I look back and I think, I'm not sure whether I was that, you know, courageous or just that naive. It didn't dawn on me that that's not what you did. Right. And so I guess in the back of my mind, I knew I could always fall back and try to get a waitressing job, but I was trying to get a proper job. Mm -hmm. Um, So I literally was walking around, you know, knocking on, showing up on on offices going, hi, can I talk to somebody about a job? And I went to what was then the Auckland Gas Company. um, And the reason being, because I had an internship at a petroleum additives division of a a gas company um, in the States. And I don't know why, but the general manager agreed to see me. Um, You know, I look back and it's like, you know, why would you just see a, a person, a 22 year old who's walked in off the street, but he did. And he said, listen, I don't have anything for you here, but I'm a director of an IT company. Let me call the managing director there and see if I can get you an interview. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he sent me over and I had an interview um, with a company called uh, Peace Computers or then became Peace Software. Um, And they offered me a three month contract. into that is how i got into it was wow. just being the first people that offered me a job
0: yeah well it's a good reason <laughs> what tell me tell me about the psychology of of going and door knocking and things like like at that point was it simply you didn't have anything to lose i'm just going to go out there because it takes a certain mindset to do that i'm just curious to understand that for then the <laughs> listeners as well because i think Oftentimes, we don't back ourselves enough to put ourselves out and allow ourselves to potentially be rejected. Mm. But it can be a useful tool, right?
1: Absolutely. And it's funny. So I think um, I'd love to say that I did it because I was courageous and I had a lot of uh, self-courage and I had a lot of confidence. Um, But in reality, I did it. And people that know me now would struggle to believe that when I was younger, I actually came across as an introvert and I lacked self-confidence um, when it came to other people. Um, I, I would just put it down to naivety. I didn't actually know any better. It didn't dawn on me that that, that wasn't the way you did it. I didn't know how else you got a job. Um, right. I didn't have that experience. Um, and I probably didn't think about the rejection. I think if I had, I probably would have been too nervous. Right. Um, because when I was younger, I did actually lack some self-confidence. Mm. Um, and it's funny, because I also again to talk about turning points to me one of the turning points for me in developing the confidence was the self reflection about moving to New Zealand. So I didn't think through all the implications. And if I did, I probably would have never gotten on the plane. Mm-hmm. But what I used to say was, you know, I, what I learned was what's the worst that can happen. I was a 22 year old person, um, who moved to the other side of the world knowing nobody in the country at a time when we didn't have internet, we didn't have email, we certainly didn't have social media. Um, no cell phones. Um, you know, I remember my father had given me a calling card that I could use under strict instructions that I could only use it in the case of an emergency because it was too expensive. Mm. And so I arrived in New Zealand. And again, I think I arrived not thinking about, you know, the big thing I'd taken on. I just did it out of naivety. I did have one freak out moment that first day, went to sleep and then woke up the next day and just sort of said, okay, I just need to do something um and then i think what happened for me as an individual was over the years my confidence actually partly came from that experience because i go well if i try that what's the worst can happen i moved to the other side of the world and i didn't know anyone mm-hmm. and that seemed to work out okay mm-hmm. um yeah so it wasn't confidence that made me do it but it's actually the experience gave me the confidence in return
0: yeah it sounds like it it built in you that that memory you know that you could then recall yeah. And, and say well what 's the worst that could happen but i 'm also interested in the fact that when you were giving advice to your friend, the one who was moving to Florida, you know that mm. that, that was a critical juncture as well wasn 't it that yeah. it was, well, I might as well do this
1: yeah and, and I think
0: part of the problem with uh, people who are wondering about the future, particularly young people, <laughs> is that sometimes the advice can be too um, too what do I want to say? Too safe. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, when, when I remember when I moved to Japan as I was 21 and some people said, you need to finish your degree, get your job, start paying off a mortgage, you know, like there's, there's a little, a process. <laughs> um, and this is the flowchart. This is what you should do. But actually breaking out of that then has given me my own individuality and my own, memories and my own experience. Yeah. And for me, it's, it's kind of an echo of what you've just said, which is, I always said, when I'm 95, and I look back on my life, am I going to have a regret that I didn't move to Japan? And the answer was clearly, yes, I will. Yeah. And that's helped me with every other decision since then, because it's like, would I regret this? Yes, well, I better do it then. <laughs>
1: And I I also think as well, one of the things that I've developed over the years looking back on that is, you know, again, that what's the worst that can happen. So you make a decision. So what happened if you went to Japan and you didn't like it? Well, then you just get on a plane and you come back home, you know, and same thing for me, if I didn't like New Zealand, I would have just gotten a plane and gone back home. Um, And I guess realizing that, yeah, it's good to sort of think about a decision and be conscious of it, but actually don't overanalyze it. And, you know, you can actually be you're paralyzed by that analysis. Yeah. Um, sometimes you just want to just give it a go. And what's the worst that happens, make a different decision afterwards.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's the, that's the point is that, but sometimes I think the advice is, well, this is the process. This is the way, yeah. and we follow it too strictly. And, and, and the thing I worry about sometimes is for young people, if they get into a certain um, career path or study, and they never actually step back from that and have the sort of OE experience which you you and I both had it sounds like to actually think well who am i you know it's kind of a basic question but yeah. if you're studying right through and then you're studying at university or you know whatever other thing that you're doing and then you're getting your job and there's never actually that break or that time to reflect and go what drives me what do i enjoy where should i head you know and as you said you're in charge of the ship. Where is it, where is it's it going?
1: funny you say that because I always say um, I've been fortunate in my career. The first time was unplanned. The second time was planned. I've taken two career breaks in my life. Um, right. And I always say I highly recommend that for anyone that can afford to. Um, that also leads into my why you need to be good with your money conversation. Um, but, um, you know, two times I've taken six months off um and giving me a chance to reset and rethink what do I actually want um and ironically the first time I thought I wanted to leave the industry I was in and after six months I couldn't wait to get back into it and the second time I wasn't sure and I came out six months going no I'm definitely doing something different
0: Mm. yeah it's interesting well it's all stages isn't it It so so we're here in New Zealand um what yeah how did that come about in terms of you know, you've got family back in America. I, personally speaking, I have family there as well. You know, it's a big draw card is to, to go home. Um, when did you feel like New Zealand was becoming the place that you wanted to settle and, and be?
1: Yeah, so uh, it was a hard one for me. What I, what I like to joke about is I kept saying, oh, I'll stay for another year. And one year became two and two became three. And when I hit 10, I'd stop, I stopped counting. Um, You know, it was challenging um, for me because, yeah, the whole family was back in the States. And let's just say it wasn't embraced. So um, I was cut off for many years from my parents for the decision to be in New Zealand. So now did that create my, my, you know, I'm not going to have you tell me what to do uh, pushback? And it was hard to talk about for many years because it's hard to sort of say I'm estranged to my parents because people have this assumption. Um, And don't get me wrong, you know, my parents, you know, gave me a great upbringing, great childhood I'm forever grateful. And ironically, after 27 years, we've only just reconnected. Um, but yeah, it was an interesting dynamic for me personally, which was some of that might've gone away if I just did as I was told. Right. And back to the US, um, you know, but there's, you know, wider things at play there? Um, but yeah, it was interesting um, because I had no family here, you know. Mm. Um, you know, I'm very close to my sister and my auntie, um, but they were all in the U S and, you know, my sister also struggled with me being so far away given we're so close. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 Well, personally speaking, I, I completely identify it. My wife's from the UK, so her family's all over in near London mm. and then my family, they've kind of moved to Hawaii now, which is a nice place to visit, but it's still <laughs> far away. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah. I hear you. So yeah. what, what was it about New Zealand then that, that you thought, no, this is, this is the place that I want to be. Was it, was it the outdoors? Was it the, you know, the opportunity and the jobs or. Yeah. So it
1: was probably a combination. So um, I think there was that confidence where I, I remember um, writing a letter to a friend and going, you know, I struggled to get a job on well, fairness, I didn't plan for that many, but I didn't get the job I wanted in the U S and I came over here and they seemed so impressed with me. I got a job with, within like a day or two um, by knocking on doors Um, so there was probably, I thought there was more opportunity for me here. Um, but then I loved the balance. I, I, I loved that you could have everything in a, in a small space. So I always felt in the U S you chose something. I choose to live in a city or I choose to be in the outdoors or I choose to be, um, you know, being able to go on the water or the mountains. Um, and you know, when I was younger, I used to ski a lot and I used to sail competitively. And I remember talking to my sister one time and saying, Oh, listen, I'm on the weekend, I'm doing this and um, I'm going skiing, but just for Saturday because I have a race on, on Sunday. Um, so, um, you know, um, um, and she knew when I said racing, it was sailing. And there was sort of this pause. She's like, When did you pick up water skiing? And I said, Well, no, I'm, I'm not water skiing, I'm snow skiing. And she's like, Well, how can you snow ski on Saturday and go sailing on Sunday? right <laughs> it like, oh, because it's only a four hour drive you know and and i really loved that aspect um you know i felt you could have everything you know the city life and all the things that you love about the city but escape to the country go hiking go sailing go skiing um, yep. whatever it is you wanted
0: hmm. no i agree with you <laughs> i was gone for 11 years from new zealand but that was part of the reason to move back a couple years ago was just the accessibility and living in christchurch you know the it's, it's just for you, yeah, yeah Mount Hutt's like an hour away, it's so close, and yet Sumner Beach is you know not that far either, so
1: yeah, so you went an hour skiing that ski trip I told you about where I kind of had my revelation, yeah you know, we drove seventeen hours to get there, right <laughs> it was pleasant, seventeen hours through Kansas it's yeah. not an exciting drive,
0: yeah, yeah, no it's a beautiful, well, that's the beauty of New Zealand it's all compressed every the best bits of europe and All within one one little place so yeah that's cool so I'd love to chat a little bit because your title is fascinating you know chief excitement officer Um, how did you end up in this sort of position maybe just take us through briefly yeah how did you end up doing what you're doing today and then I'd love to know more about what it is that you're doing
1: okay Um, so if I go back to what I always said that you need to plan your career um, be prepared for disappointments and be prepared for the unexpected Um, They kind of all got me to where I am today. Mm -hmm. Um, So if I look back, I had an 18-year career in IT. um, And my last role was head of operations for Unisys New Zealand. Um, And it was a a fantastic opportunity, really wonderful, very challenging at the end. Um, And so in the the kind of course of that little bit of the journey, the first thing that happened when I look back on it was I was uh, selected for a leadership program. Um, And when I was on the phone with the vice president, it took all of 11 minutes for me to get asked if I was relocatable. So when I said no to that, suddenly everything went out the window except they were gonna get me a mentor, Um, which was actually a great thing. So they got me this wonderful mentor. She was um, a sec at one of the government agencies and she worked me really hard for a year. And so for that first year, she said to me, I want to know what you want, not what the company wants and i thought about it i said well i wouldn't mind knowing how to make my skills transferable you know because without sounding arrogant i was pretty sure i could walk into any other senior i.t role but what if i didn't want to do it Mm -hmm. um and so she gave me homework and she worked me really hard for a year and she stopped being a mentor now we just catch up and have a glass of wine together right (laughs) um so we had that was the first thing and then we went through a few series of disappointments. So um, it took me many years before I admitted to it, but Unisys was my third redundancy. Manager. You haven't lived until you've been made redundant, not once, but twice, preferably three times. Right. In my career, the first one was valid. The second one was clearly a way of firing me. And the third one um, was how I'd say complicated. Um, and so with this complicated uh, redundancy, I had a manager, um, Two lines, um, my manager director locally and um, a woman overseas who was trying to push me out of the organization um, and was trying to put me on a redundancy list. And I kind of figured it out. Um, and I tested my, my boss a little bit and he kind of admitted to me. And then he said, you have a choice, you know, um, expecting me to say, no, I'm going to stay. And in the end, one little thing gave me the courage to go, no, nope, let me go, put me on the list, make me redundant. Mm. Um, and so that was the first thing. And then I said, listen, I've taken one six-month career break in my life. Um, I'm going to do another one this time because I'm just a little burnt out and I'm not sure what I want to do. So I'm going to take six months off. And so that was really great. And then I mentioned to my mentor what was happening confidentially. And she said, ah, oh, listen, this is perfect. There's an acting CIR role at our government agency. It would be perfect for you. We just need a transition person. You should put your hand forward. And I was like, well, that wasn't part of the plan. And I was like, okay, no, no, I will, you know. And then of course embarrassment, um, you know, after being asked to it, I didn't get the job. Right. <laughs> and I look back and I think, oh, I'm really glad because I would have just gone on and done more of the same. So I reverted back to my original plan, which is to take six months off, um, which I did. Um, and at the end of the six months, I decided to, I did not want to go back into the industry necessarily. I didn't want to work for US multinational ever again had very clear things of what I didn't want to do, but not necessarily what I wanted to do. So I started consulting. I set up a small consulting company with a good friend of mine who was was already consulting. Um, And she really adapted to it, whereas I struggled a little bit, and I was struggling to find my niche. And um, I had picked up a contract as the acting general manager of marketing, communication, and fundraising at Bernardo's. Um, and it was a 20 hour week contract, um, and they needed somebody to come in and clean stuff up for them and then recruit their permanent GM. And I thought, oh, maybe that could be my niche because I haven't quite figured out how to define myself as a consultant. Mm. So I actually started looking through seek to to see who had vacancies that I could pitch myself to as, Hey, I'm your consultant. That will actually help you, you know, sort out that area and get your permanent person. Um, And I saw my job advertised. And I just looked at it and went, wow, that's just amazing. Um, I love it. And so my business partner came back to our office at the end of the day um, and I shoved her the ad and she was like, oh my God, that is you. And I was like, wow. I know, but it's, it's you would know, just set up Mint consulting. And she looked at me and she said, oh, please. We're two private con- consultants who uh, spent a couple thousand dollars to create a brand so we look bigger than we were. Um, <laughs> You know, we've got uh, office space on a month to month basis, just go for it. Um, And so I did. Um, And I was very fortunate because, um, I'm just going to turn on the light here because I'm realizing I'm getting a bit dark here. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, You know, what I I was really fortunate about was I was not what the board was looking for. I did not fit any of the job criteria. So, you know, you you go, you know, of these 10 criteria, how many do you have? Well, you know, next to none of them. Yeah, um, they were very clear on the type of person that they wanted, which would be similar to my predecessor and an ex-educator. Um, but I applied anyways. Um, I had to go through four rounds of interviews because they couldn't agree on which candidate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was really fortunate that they decided to take a chance on me and they gave me what I considered to be the best job in the world.
0: That's awesome. So when was this? When did that transition happen?
1: So I'm just coming up ten years now. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah, so that, my two-year anniversary that, is in August.
0: Yeah, wow, that's amazing. Well, that's sometimes how, how you know, sometimes the, the, the job descriptions and the criteria is not actually the best way to decide who should, who should fulfill the role, right?
1: Yeah, Yeah. and I, I think that's the biggest thing to, to uh, a message I love to give to young people because, you know, um, and I'm going to stereotype here, but I know it's not fair because it happens both ways. Um, but the, you know you've heard the joke that women are pretty notoriously are bad at putting themselves forward, mm-hmm. and there's the joke that you know if you put out a job description and there's ten um, things that you need to have, the woman thinks that they need to have ten before they can apply, and the man goes, "Sweet, I've got six, I'm overqualified." Um, now that's a bit unfair and it's very stereotypical, but it actually comes from an actual study that was done by HP. You know, so there's actually basis to. The, the the joke out there. Um and so whether you're a male or female, I think there are people with personality traits that think, uh, I can't go for something unless I'm exactly what it says. Right. Um, mm. yeah. Or I think it's also that fear of, but what happens if I apply for it and I don't get it? Isn't that going to be embarrassing for me? Yeah.
0: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I hear you. It's it's a big problem actually. Is <laughs> that people don't have, have that confidence to just go for it. Which mm. comes back to our conversation before about, well, what's the worst that can happen, you know? Yeah. Might as well.
1: yeah, absolutely. It. yeah. Um, And it's funny because you know, when I talk about my career, I also talk about, you know, the, the jobs I didn't get that I applied for. Yeah. I talk about the uh, three redundancies, as I said, one valid, one not, and one complicated. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also talk about the two big promotions that I got. Where both times when I applied for it, the first time I didn't get it. Um, And that's an interesting dynamic when almost forced in applying for a new job, which is applying for promotion within your company, that there is a tendency for some people to be embarrassed. Well, what if I don't get it? And how awkward is that going to be? And what if people find out that I applied and I didn't get it? Um, And again, I think that you're putting your own lens on it. And the first time was a promotion to sales manager. um, And I didn't get it. And the lesson I got there was really good because my managing director. Was astute enough to pick up on the phone because he was based in Wellington, I was based in Auckland. Um, that I was about to sell, because I would say it. Um, so he called me to tell me I didn't get the job, um, and I obviously was just a bit quiet. And he paused and he said, "Listen, Terry, your potential is not why I didn't give you the job. The reason why I didn't give you the job is the following reasons. You know, I think you have the potential, but how you handle this news will determine whether I ever give you that job again." Mm. Um, yeah. And yeah, that was probably while it felt like he was pretty much reaching down the phone and slapping me across the face. It was exactly what I needed to hear. Um, and so I, as I like to say, I put my big girl pants on, got over, you know, my disappointment, worked really hard and it was less than six months later that I was offered the self manager role in Wellington without having to apply.
0: Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, in a, in a way as well, though, what you're saying, you know, just thinking of people, and honestly, right now we're recording in COVID-19 times and, and there is going to be a redundancies and people losing jobs and things, but I think the way you frame some of those conversations can be really helpful for people mm. if they're moving on to something else. I know I've been involved in various things over the years and one of the most helpful things is that if, if you're told, you know, um, this isn't the right thing, right now but maybe in the future it will be you know rather than it being a totally negative thing actually framing it in a positive as positive as you can way Yeah. yeah
1: and it was interesting in that case um his reasons i understand it i think he probably went too far but his rationale was that he didn't feel a salesperson could manage the salespeople they were previously peers with so he had a belief that to move into a sales management role you had to move um, I see. Yeah. yeah. And in fairness, I probably wasn't ready for a sales manager role. So he also gave me some other things I needed to work on. Um, and then it was interesting because, again, a bit of serendipity. What happened was he had picked up, it's going to sound strange, uh, South Africa as a territory. Don't ask me why, but you've got a country manager who has New Zealand and South Africa as a territory. And other than the rugby, I'm not sure what the connection is.
0: Southern hemisphere.
1: (laughs) Um, But being young and ambitious in my mind, I thought, yeah, I know that he says I need to move to do it. So I actually put this really big proposition proposal to him about, okay, so here's the thing, Andy, you know, you've got South Africa. Um, I want a sales manager position. You know, I'm good. You know, I know how you work. You know, I will look after what you need to look after. Um, and you need somebody over there that you can trust because you're not going to be there. So, you know, put me out there. Let me, give me my sales manager role. Um, give it to me for two years and then bring me back to New Zealand. Um, right. And um, have this conversation and, you know, again, serendipity, I'm really fortunate that for the sales manager in Wellington. Thank you, Phil. I'm during these conversations. You know, so, um, you know, part of it was I was showing that I was still interested, but I'd listened to his advice and I was willing to move. Um, yeah, luckily Phil resigned and I came down to Wellington instead of going to South Africa.
0: Yeah. Wow. Well, that's that. I like that word serendipity. Sometimes you can't see it coming and, it, and things happen. So the website for Young Enterprise says, Inspiring Students, Unleashing Leaders, Yes. Can you just describe a bit more about how you're doing that? <laughs> What's going on?
1: Yeah. So a young enterprise, uh, it, it's just amazing. I'll be honest. It's, it's the most rewarding thing I've ever been involved with. Um, and so for us, what we are trying to do is basically um, inspire young people so that they can be successful um, in both business and in life. Um, so we very much talk about unleashing your entrepreneurial spirit Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean creating entrepreneurs in some cases it is, but in some cases it's creating that, that spirit within you. That's going to make you more resilient, more innovative. Um, you know, and therefore you might be more, um, not just able to get a job, but better at those jobs you have, you might be more successful in those jobs because you can help your companies grow. Um, it might be the other end of the extreme where you become an entrepreneur and you create jobs, um, or you could be something in the middle. And I think COVID-19 is a classic example where I think you used to think of it as one or the other. You're, you're either helping people to be great employees or you're helping people to be great entrepreneurs, whereas you've got this, this new normal where there might be a lot of people that have what we're calling side hustle. Um, and it could be just because they have a passion and they haven't quite wanted to make the full jump into entrepreneurship. Um, or it could be that they, need, they find a situation they're in right now that they need extra money to make ends meet because they've been taken down to 80% um, salary or they haven't been able to get the, the, the paying job that they wanted. So they need to supplement their employment with something else. So um, that's kind of the, the, the ethos of what we do. Mm-hmm. And so regardless of what you do, all of that needs leadership. It needs leadership at a personal level. Um, and, um, a business level. Now, does it mean all of our young people were trying to make them the CEOs or the chief excitement officers of big companies? No, but everyone in their own right is a leader, you know, and that leadership skill is as much as about what you do for other people as what you do for yourself and your funnel and your community.
0: I like that emphasis because I do a lot with startups and helping people at the beginning of their entrepreneurial journey. And quite often, they're young people starting out. And sometimes I worry that the accelerator programs and the, um, the emphasis on the training and everything is so much on finding the unicorns, you know, the, the, the ones who are going to be the next Zuckerberg. Mm. They're going to create a billion dollar company. And if you don't achieve the billion dollar company, then somehow you haven't made it. Because you know we, we want more rocket labs and, and we want more you know the, and there's becomes this pressure I think on people who are starting out that if I don't make it in with like huge yeah. then I've s- failed <laughs> and I think it's the wrong emphasis because the the actual you know we need people we need all, first of all we need all types of businesses it yeah. can't all be the next Facebooks. So that's the first thing. But then the second thing is, we actually just need good people who have character and who go through. And maybe they they they're not on Time Magazine or they're not on this. But mm-hmm. but I do worry sometimes that there's a culture, particularly if you go to pitch evenings, you know, and angel investing, and and it's all good. It's just sometimes there's this emphasis too far on the you're the next big Wonder Kid, you know.
1: It's interesting. We created a pretty picture a few years ago because every organization needs a pretty picture, um, mm-hmm. and every pretty picture needs to be a triangle or a circle, just because they're easy to draw. Right. So we went with a triangle, <laughs>
0: yeah. and we
1: we'll talk about it being our pyramid. And what we have is we have a pyramid with layers. And if you can picture as I'm talking, um, the base layer of the pyramid just says work ready and in demand, and then the next layer talks about being an internal intimator, because nobody likes the word entrepreneur then you talk about startup addicts, then you talk about CEOs and founders, and then you talk about disruptors. And we created that on the basis of trying to say that what we do, I guess, addresses two ends of a spectrum and everything in between. Um, I remember when I, um, not long after I first started, one of our largest funders said to me, you know, you're you're our favorite. I was like, oh, fantastic, why? And he said, because we find a lot of things and most things either for young people support the really um, disadvantaged or the really high achievers you're the only thing I've seen that actually the same thing supports both ends of the spectrum and everything in between mm-hmm. and it's funny so when we came up at the pyramid we had a couple videos that students had done for us um, and one of them was a very successful entrepreneur and she's like you know listen you know I decided to become an entrepreneur because of young enterprise and that's fantastic and that's what we talk about that's Sort of people seeing that, 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 the top of our pyramid, mm. but the base of our pyramid is just as important. And this video came through from a young woman in the Hawke's Bay and I didn't even know it was coming. And in this, this video, this young woman says, you yeah, know, well, I, um, I used to be really bad at going to school. I skipped school all the time. My attendance was really poor, but I started doing young enterprise and I love my young enterprise class. So now I go to school every day. Mm. Now, Tell me which is more important, the young woman who we change her life because now she's going to school every day and the flow and effects that would have? Or the other young woman who is an entrepreneur and would go on to create jobs? Mm-hmm. You know, and I guess my answer is both. Um, and maybe we're fortunate that what we do, we can see both and, and we use the pyramid as a way of reminding ourselves that one is not right or wrong, um, but it's that combination. And so, You know, our view is the more people we can capture to hit some experience, the better. And then some we might push up to become the people that go on to the the accelerated programs you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, And if we can create a few more of those, that'd be great. Mm -hmm. But actually just everyone else is just as important to us.
0: Yeah, no, that's really good. So that's the we're doing it by video. And that's that's it, right? Yes. Yeah, it's great. What we'll do, um, because the podcast is audio, but I'm recording the video as well. Um, So, what we'll do is put links into the show notes. So, if people are listening right now, they can click through, because this looks like it's in your annual report, I think,
1: about what we do.
0: So, we'll put some links. But yeah, I like it. There's lots of nice graphics and pictures there showing what's happening and yeah.
1: We just put our our 2019 annual report online today. So I'm not sure if you're looking at last year's or this year's. I
0: just clicked on and it said annual report 2019. Is that correct?
1: You would be one of the first ones. Oh, there we go. I feel
0: privileged. (laughs) So, um, just talk us through, um, it, you know, the, what's the elevator pitch, or or who are the key people that you're trying to help? What ages are they, and and yeah, what are you seeing?
1: Yeah, so for us, um, in terms of what we're trying to do, it's it's about giving young people the experiences um, and the confidence to make the right choices in life, and we talk about prosperity um, at both an individual and a country level. So ultimately, we exist to improve the prosperity of New Zealand. So that's why we exist. So we need to understand what we as a country need. But to achieve that, we have to start with the individual. Um, and if we can help an individual out, then they can um, better provide for their funnel, their community, and then ultimately the country. Um, so it's that, that balance between the two. And I guess the other thing for us is really important to talk about is, what does prosperity mean? Um, so for us prosperity doesn't have a single definition you know what if prosperity is for one person is different for prosperity for another person but it's about having the resources the skills and experiences to give you choices mm. you know whether that's an individual or a country and so for us you know to your point prosperity for somebody might be you know about you know being an entrepreneur running a thousand person dollar thousand person organization um and having, you know, um a nice house and a flash car and a a batch. It could be that I'm a social entrepreneur and I've made a really big impact in the area that I'm trying to change in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, it could be actually, you know what, I just actually have enough to give my family choices about what we're gonna have for dinner today. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so what prosperity means to you is gonna be different to prosperity for the next person, and that's really important. Um you know, to, But it's about providing those base layer skills and experiences and confidence to be able to do it.
0: Yeah, no, that's really good. So on a practical level, what ages of people are you, yeah, what would the program be that would be running?
1: So uh, we predominantly work with uh, secondary school students. We do say that is our sweet spot. Yep. Um, we do have some resources that we make available for primary and intermediate. And it's not that we don't value the need to bring it into that age. It's just being small, lean charity. You have to focus your resources um, in a certain place, and there are 500 secondary schools and two and a half thousand primary and intermediate. Right. Um, so to give us better bang for our buck, we choose to focus on secondary school students. Mm-hmm. And I guess the way it works is we always talk about the pathway in and pathway out. So our flagship program, which is the Lion Foundation Young Enterprise Scheme, or YES as we affectionately call it, sees secondary senior secondary students set up and run an actual business. So real products and services, real profit and law, real purpose, uh, real HR issues, they think they're the first ones to ever have a team issue, um, but that real life experience. Um, and that's our flagship, and that's what we're trying to drive to. Yep. And then what we have is we have a number of feeder programs and experiences for junior secondary. So it could be resources the teacher uses in the classroom, or it could be a one, two or three day experience that we, we, we facilitate ourselves. Mm-hmm. So we've got a range of those for junior secondary. And the whole idea is that that generates some excitement that more people will then sign up to do YES. Um, and then what we also do from YES is we have what we call our extreme experiences. So those things that for those that have really unleashed a bit of an entrepreneurial bug, we can do a really intense, experience to take them to the next level. So what we call our Entrepreneurs in Action, which is I was kind of startup meeting meets yes on steroids, um, you know, or an overseas trip or a domestic trip. Um, so that's kind of what we do. It is predominantly, as I said, just secondary school students um, that we work with. Um, we do have a wonderful alumni program, but the purpose of the alumni program is more to be that connector and to help them with their pathway out. Um, so, you know, our alumni advisory group is working on some stuff for us. So like how do we be that connector so that they know, okay, so I've done this. So what do I want to do next? Well, I might want to go and join this club at my tertiary, or I might want to do a startup weekend, or I know about this accelerator program, or I'm just connecting with some other entrepreneurs that I like, um, that I might go on and do business with. Um, so while we work on our, our alumni program, which is over 18,
0: the focus of what we do is, um, high school students. Yeah. That's really cool. I, I, my first experience probably was maybe, well, before lockdown, (laughs) um, a couple months ago, I think it was February and I walked into Ara down here in, in Christchurch and the the gym, the gym there, you know, and I walked in and I was doing the speed mentoring. Um, and I, I walked in and there's just hundreds of, Young people there, and they're all in their little groups. And um, yeah, we had like five minutes or seven minutes or something to go group by group. And Mm then they just said, "Well, you know, what's your idea?" And then we would give them feedback on whatever it was. But it was really
1: thank you for volunteering. I mean, we have probably a thousand people like you a year that volunteer. We couldn't do it without you. And that having real business people makes it authentic. Um, Yeah. Just curious, do you remember any standout ideas?
0: well I think it was their early early stages um yeah. like they they were just with their day of ideation
1: yeah yeah
0: yeah exactly but the one that um and I'd love to talk to you more about the theme that this represents but it was some um young woman who wanted to basically start a business that would recycle plastics yep. and um and make something that could be sold or could be used, possibly jewelry or earrings or, you know, other things. Mm -hmm. Um, that's, that's my memory. It was probably slightly different to that, but it was definitely a focus on, um, social entrepreneurship and impact. Um, yeah, yeah, but the, the session went, I, I think it was an hour and a half or something like that. And then part of it was that, and then I helped out with giving some, um, like a high-level overview of what social enterprise is.
1: Oh, that's, yeah. that's
0: what I do as a lawyer, is helping mm-hmm. people set up social enterprises. So we had students and then explaining purpose and profit and how they combine. And yeah, it was really, really well done. The oh, team down so here. Hi,
1: thank you very much for doing that. And you, yeah. you're right, social enterprise, it resonates really well with young people. You know, I was sort yeah. of joking, my generation, there was kind of this belief back in the day where you made your money and then you gave back. Like, it was either or, um, you know, once i made my money, then I can do some good. Um, Whereas I think the really refreshing thing about this generation is they get that actually they don't have to be mutually exclusive. Mm. You you can actually do something that is profitable and still be be about making an impact and, and having a purpose. Yeah, um, and good in the
0: world. Well, that was going to be my question, so you have kind of answered it, which is great. Which is, have you seen in your 10 years, have, even over that time, have you seen any shifts or focuses from students who, you know, previously maybe they were more focused on the profit making business, which is fine too, but moving towards the more what's the impact? What is that? What's the mission that we want to achieve yeah. here? So, what I'd say
1: in my 10 years, I've seen a shift. Kind of on this pendulum from one probably too far one way to too far the other way and we're kind of back in the middle mm-hmm. so you know certainly um when i started they were pretty much all profit for-profit businesses yep. and you said nothing wrong with that and i always say a for-profit business if it's you know socially responsible is still a good business because it's creating jobs hmm. um, but then what we did is we started to introduce these things and certainly the the uh, mindset of young people gave it so that we started talking about social enterprise and then we only, and I'll be honest, the first couple were still they didn't get it. It's like I'm just doing all this and I'm going to give a little bit of money to a charity that I don't know what the charity is. It's like right,
0: eh, yeah. not really
1: a social enterprise, but we're no. <laughs> getting closer. You know, at least you get that there is something you need to be thinking, thinking
0: about it. Yeah. Like,
1: and then I'll be honest, we probably went too far the other way, and what we started seeing with these social enterprises, which aren't social enterprises, they were charities, Right. and there was no financial model. So their entire mm-hmm. financial model was what I call the begging model. So I'm going to do this and it's a great cause and a great purpose and government's going to give me money, Mm. you know, and I'm going to apply for grants and I'm going to go to the philanthropists, and I'm going to get sponsorship. And, you know, we started talking, it's like, well, I'm not trying to create more charities. I mean, we're a charity. And I know how hard that is. Mm. You know, we have an issue with too many charities in New Zealand. We've got 27,000 charities and something like 120,000 not for profits Mm. for the size of country Are That is too many. Mm. Um, and the issue is for those, when we went too far the other way, what we're seeing is the young people not thinking about, well, how is this financially sustainable? And what I'm really pleased to see is that we're coming somewhere back in the middle yeah. where people get that profit and purpose can go hand in hand. And so we very much talk with our students about the quadruple bottom line and the four is of sustainability. And yes, there is social, um, there's the environment, and there's cultural sustainability. But actually the first one is financial sustainability as well. Because if you're not financially sustainable, then you can't actually deliver to your purpose because you can't pay wages and you can't pay your rent. Um, and if you have a situation like COVID, you know, you can't survive more than a couple weeks. And so that's why it's really important that they're married and coupled together, not mutually exclusive.
0: Oh, that's really good. I'm glad to hear it. And I think, well, certainly when I was there, that there was real interest among the students and and the ones that we chatted to were very, understanding that we have to trade, we have to have money to make us sustainable, but we have a bigger purpose than just how much our profit's going to be. We've actually identified a pain point and we have an impact driven business that's, that's working in that area. Separate to this, and in the show notes, I might put some links to some some things that I've been writing on this, because it oh, may be that it would be helpful. So I, I do quite a lot with Akina Foundation. Yeah,
1: I know. It tells me you're just absolutely proud of everything you do there.
0: <laughs> yeah, and one of the things was a report um, last year, about a year ago now, we, were, we, we looked at 20 different social enterprises in New Zealand, yep. um, ranging from names that you would know um, you know, like Little Yellowbird is a clothing mm-hmm. manufacturer, Whale Watch Kaikoura,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, Kilmarnock Enterprises down here, a real range, trade aid. Mm-hmm. and um, And then we said, what are the barriers as a purpose-driven business? You know, what are the things that are holding you back? And you know what they are, the access to capital and yeah. how do we get mm-hmm. the structures right and all that type of thing. But I'll put a little link in the in the notes because it might be that some of your people would be interested in well. That would well. be great. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I'll and send you totally some resources.
1: Really about, which is, if we have more social enterprises, you know, life would be better. And it's not, yeah, you know, I don't want charities, you know, but, and you know, and, and, I, and I always say to our team, don't make kids feel bad if they're just doing a, a for profit as long as they're socially responsible and environmentally responsible, that's still good. So yeah. I'm very conscious of the pressure on some kids to go oh i'm just doing a you know whatever it's just about making money it's like oh it's okay as long as you you are a, a responsible um, company yeah, that's yeah which is
0: why some of the lenses like b corporations b corp you yeah. know setting if you meet these criteria you get an assessment and yeah yeah and ultimately um, if a business is employing people then, as we know more than ever, you know, having employment is a really important thing. So, oh, I know, you know, there's a, there's definitely a scale.
1: Um, but yeah, and it's interesting also that getting just between your and I and put this in the recording. Um, but you know, getting people to see that. Like, I remember was it was last year, I got really angry because um, people missed that a social enterprise is still a for profit enterprise. And I remember eating my lunch started to get some bad publicity, and there was like these comments and you think, like, why do I read the comments? Um, the comments about, you know, well, you know, Lisa King should disclose how much money she earns. It's like, why should she? She's a company. Mm-hmm. You know, why does nobody else discloses what they earn? Um, you know, and you know, separate to like, you know, separate to the fact that she's a social enterprise, do you know how many startups the, the founder basically makes no money for how long mm-hmm. and what they do to get it off the ground. So the whole startup thing frustrates me, but it's also like they're not a charity, you know. I do get if you're a charity and you're getting public money or getting grants that you are accountable for specifically how you spend it. But actually, you know, if you're a social enterprise, you know, yes, you need to be accountable, but you shouldn't have to de- like it, it's it's not the same. Yeah. You know. And actually, if someone in a social enterprise makes a salary, then that's good. Yeah. You know? <laughs>
0: Well, that's what I'm trying to encourage is that is actually it's okay to make money. It's not a dirty thing. Yeah. And what The problem I see is sometimes people come in with the mindset of, well, we have to become a charity and we have to be, you know, I, I phrase it, it's a little bit extreme maybe, but sacrifice ourself on the altar of charity, you know, yeah. like, oh, I, I don't make anything. But actually what we need to encourage is innovation and people coming in to do businesses that run really well, that also achieve impact. Yeah. Um, yeah. One of the, one of the things that I'll share with you just cause the listeners will be hopefully interested is I'm moving away a little bit from describing things as social enterprises and I'm describing them more as impact enterprises. Oh, like like, yeah. yeah. Cause I think sometimes social enterprise has its own conceptions. Yeah, and, 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 and I mean, I wrote a book called Social Enterprises in New Zealand, a legal handbook. So I've been part of the system promoting social enterprise. But I also think impact enterprise is a bigger, broader term, and yeah. it actually can embrace more. And mm. what I worry about is that people say, well, the social enterprises they there over there in that corner. Yeah. And actually, what we need is that all enterprises, everybody's, you know, hey, wake, we're all in this together. Yeah. And it can't just be those people over there that, that care. It's got to be all business needs to look at the mirror and say, well, actually we need to change the way we do things. And there's some pretty good concepts among those social entrepreneurs. So,
1: and yeah. it's also like, I think everything is a spectrum. I love spectrums. Maybe it's engineering. you know? So actually, you know, if you go from a pure charity to a pure, pure profit, there's this like wonderful gray spectrum and it's like, you know, n- you can't sort of say, it's not a, so it's not a, you're a social enterprise or you're not. So if you're not a social enterprise, you're not doing good. Yeah. It's, well it's, it's not black and white, everything's black.
0: Yeah, yeah, well if you go back in the back catalog, I said before we started recording, there's 180 episodes now, and I've done a whole bunch about social enterprise. There's one, I think it's three or four minutes about what's the definition of a social enterprise. And I did that report I just mentioned as an audio book. Um, so oh, it's two. Yeah, it's a 2 hour um just reading it. My wife and I, mm. she read the quotes and I read the main body of the text. Okay. But, but um yeah, I mean, Lisa King and Eat My Lunch is one of the case studies from that report. So mm. yeah, it's it's good. Well, we've gone down that rabbit hole cuz that, that interests me. <laughs> um, yeah, me too. So so just to to round off um if people are interested, you know, there might be some parents listening who want to encourage their children to find out more or you know, teachers who want to find out more, what's the best way for them to connect or, or learn more? Or, yeah, what would you suggest?
1: Um, so if anyone wants to connect more, just reach out to us, jump on our website, give us a phone call, jump on one of our social media channels. Um, and I guess in multiple different ways, people can get involved. So if you have a young person, a son or daughter, niece or nephew, uh mokopuno, uh, that you want to be involved, um, we'd love for your help. Um, if they're not already um, delivering our programs in the school, we can use your help to get them in there. Um, you can jump on board to coach, to judge, to mentor, um, uh, to buy products. So you know, right now there's definitely a hashtag love local and hashtag shop local. Um, we're going to try to push the thing out for, for our supporters going hashtag love yes, hashtag shop yes, um, and to get people to actually um, support these young people this year, we have over 4,000 students who are setting up over 1,000 companies. You know, so we'd love to get people actually putting their money where their mouth is and actually supporting these young people by buying their products. Um, and what I do is a little plug: saying so not only do you um, support, you know, some of our young Italian to do, to encourage them to keep going, but you actually get some pretty good products in return. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I do know my in-laws know that they, they all get some yes products from me every year as Christmas presents.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, that's really good. And the thing, the thing that I really love is, you know, you and I, hopefully in 15 years, 20 years, you'll be able to look back and like, what I'm trying to get to is you probably don't see the immediate effect of what you do, but the impact of people having this experience at that young age I'm sure is going to pay dividends you know a decade or two decades from now when they're thirty five years old, and they say, Well, I set up my first company twenty years ago, <laughs> and well, that's the legacy, um, isn't it?
1: Funny you should say that um, we already have that right now, and that's our alumni program, so we launched our alumni program um, in two thousand um, and twelve and so right now the alumni that have stayed with us are now at that stage where you know i can think of one young man from the past of 2011 um has a uh, startup company called spock he's based in new york you know two years ago did a 1.5 million five million dollar capital raise with Greg norman um you know and he started with in fact when he looked at the pyramid his comment to me was uh terry what you did is you pushed me up a level um and you know it gave him that desire to start his own company that he didn't have beforehand. Yeah. Um, but actually, the reason we started our alumni program was because when I took on this job, a very good friend of mine, Robert, um, who I used to work with said to me, oh my God, you, you did Young Enterprise, I loved it. It was my best thing in school. In fact, I still have my product in my annual report. And you know, Robert's my age, I was like, why why do you still have something from school? Like, I mean, that was... (laughs) Um, But it started making me think, and that's why we launched the alumni program. And so what we do have is we have lots of stories of not just the students that I've gotten to know over the last 10 years, but the previous ones. So we talked earlier about Lisa King. She's a proud Yes alumna, you know? So she did Young Enterprise when she was in school. Um, Rachel Talalay talks about how she did Young Enterprise when she was in school. That's Um, cool. You know, Stevie Woodhouse, Stefan LaBianca, you know, all these wonderful entrepreneurs who have actually said to us, um, you know, that I started with with Young Enterprise. In fact, we just did our second annual um, alumni survey um, last year, and so um, we released it. We had just over 300 respondents, uh, 21% self-identified as an entrepreneur. Um, Of those, 90% said that, that Young Enterprise was one of the main reasons they became an entrepreneur. So we played a part in that journey. Um, Between them, they had set up 263 companies, of which 160 are still active. Mm. 122 of them were considered social enterprises. Um, And we asked them to estimate the number of of people they've employed in that time. And that cohort alone has employed between 2,700 and 4,600 people.
0: Um,
1: So we're already knowing that impact um, that we're making. That's
0: awesome. Yeah. Well, having statistics and being able to give real life stories, it gives, you know, the credibility goes so much higher, doesn't it? That's
1: awesome. It's rewarding, you know, it's, going to sound funny, but I have times when I go out, um, and I remember being at the social enterprise reform in Christchurch, I'm sure you were there. I
0: was, yeah. yeah. And,
1: you know, you know, we had like 1500 people. And, um, you know, it was one of the main sessions, I was just walking out of the big room. And all of a sudden I heard my name and this young woman literally starts, you know, kind of leaping over chairs to get to me. And mm-hmm. I'm sort of looking at her and quickly like doing the scan of the name tag. And then I clicked and just as she got to me, and I clicked who it was. She said, Terry, do you remember me? I'm Sophie. I did. Yes. The first year you started, I just had to come tell you the young enterprise changed my life. Ah. You know? And this was probably, you know, seven, eight years after the fact, and I hadn't seen or heard her in all that time. And in a room full of 1,500 people, she felt the need to come over and tell me that. You yeah. know, that's rewarding.
0: Yeah, that's really great. Well, it's been wonderful chatting with you and just hearing your own life story as well. I think the reason that I do that at the start, and some people say, well, might say, I don't, but the podcast is quite long. But the reason is that I think it's really valuable to hear a person's story from their own lips, yeah. you know? And so to hear your journey, How did you end up in New Zealand? You know, the decisions that led you to that, you know, the fact that you've been through redundancies, all all that has been really helpful for people now to listen and hear about what's actually going on with the Young Enterprise Scheme. So what we'll do is in the show notes, we'll put links to everything. And if you think of other things, anything you want, pretty much, we can just put it in. And then we've recorded this as a video and it will also be the audio podcast so we can share it with others and help to spread the message and we'll share
1: it as well and you know we just love i love what you're doing it's funny how many people so even though i canceled you on last tuesday i had somebody else um trying to book something and i sort of emailed the group. it's like oh i'm really sorry guys i've just committed to doing a seeds podcast and actually it was really interesting that i had two people come back i love the seeds podcast
0: Oh, cool! <laughs> and then
1: I felt one really bad because later they messaged me, "How did it go?" I'm like,
0: Damn. "Yeah, no, I think I, well, with Seeds Podcast, it's one of those ones where I I do view it as seeds going out there, and I think yes. I don't even know the impact that it's having um, because so that
1: would be interesting to think for you to think about how do you measure that impact?
0: And I know daily how many people are listening, which is usually in the hundreds of people, but I know it's having a, an impact, and that's why I continue. You know with a weekly podcast which is frankly quite a lot of work to to yeah. do well I'll, this is real we're just finishing up here but the the last story from my perspective is i had an email from somebody so i interviewed somebody and we knew that he had cancer and he died two months after the interview and then yeah. about a month later i got an email from his son and the son wrote to me and said thank you so much for recording my father's life we we didn't have it recorded and now we do and now I can pass it on to, you know, the next generation. And of course in the oh, interview Lord. we're both kind of crying. I was gonna and,
1: say that's like a, you know, yeah in <laughs> all moment.
0: Yeah, but that's Aww. given me the energy to continue on. So, you know, I've interviewed people. Um, yeah, I, I interviewed a 90-year-old nun who's been working in hospice care for like 70 years, incredible mm-hmm. legacy. And so I i I see the value in doing it. And yeah, it's uh, it's I, I don't need the validation from other people to just keep keep going. So it's that's good. But, but it might
1: be nice because it would sort of bring in that loop of like other people wanting to be involved and in like if you they said, Oh, actually that's why I want to jump on and listen to the seeds, you know. And yeah, you know, yeah. for example when Rachel said to me, Oh my god, I love seeds, I probably should have asked her Hey, I might do that for you. I'm going to go back and ask her why she wants it, you know?
0: That'd be great. Yeah. Well, any feedback is welcome. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate oh, well, your time. Oh, you. A, I
1: really enjoyed it. Yeah.
0: Oh, good. Yeah. It's a Friday Friday evening now. So um just want to say thanks so much for coming on the show.
1: <laughs> thank you so much for inviting me. I feel honored and um, look forward to seeing what you come
0: up with. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that interview with Terry. I know for me, I love that idea that she had. You know, if you're faced with a tough decision, ask what's the worst that could happen? I think there's a lot of wisdom there. And I also enjoyed hearing her own life story and how that's played out in her decisions. And I also loved hearing about the Young Enterprise Scheme and all of the impact that it's having on the current generation. And I think you can just tell that there's gonna be a lot more people coming through who then go on to start businesses or, or contribute to our society in some really cool ways. If you enjoyed this, then check out some of the other interviews in the back catalog as well. Until next time.